This is Base Layer, brought to you by Orca. I am your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. This is your new episode of Base Layer. We have a two-for-one show today. We have Tyler Spalding, the co-founder of Flexa, and then we have Tyler. Uh, we have Lassie Clausen, who is the founding partner of IKX, an early seed stage token VC fund. Um, this is going to be interesting because we usually just have a founder or an investor on here, but now we have a founder and an investor on the show at the same time. And there's some correlations and there are some reasons for that, which we'll go into. Tyler, uh, for you, uh, we're going to kick it off for you first, uh, looking at your background. Um, I can actually say that you almost, it seems like you are a rocket engineer. You worked at Lockheed Martin, um, focusing on their engineering uh, programs. And you also, I believe, worked at NASA for a little while too. When you know, definitely want to learn about that. And then I see there was some time at MIT. And then you were the CTO of Raise um, and also at TasteBud Technologies. And now you're the co founder of Flexa. So if you could, we'll start with you, uh, just maybe for the listeners here, give a little bit of a background on who, you know, what you've done over the last few years, what Flexa is, why you founded it, and then we'll go into a host of questions we have about Flexa. And then lastly, obviously, we want to hear more about 1KX and what you're investing in, why you're investing in it. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, yeah, David, thanks for uh, having us on here. Uh, really looking forward to some, some of this conversation. Um, so I guess on my end, um, I've ended up just being in payments uh, for a lot longer um, than I would have suspected. Uh, as you mentioned, I uh, was in aerospace engineering for quite a while um, in the NASA space program. I uh, did a bunch of work on the Mars crew module. So got to work on some, some really fun stuff there, but uh, found that uh, some of the hardware engineering and sort of the timetables and everything else, even though I really enjoyed it. Um, there were long time scales uh, in terms of seeing your product get to market uh, and taking decades sometimes for those um, those projects to kind of actually manifest themselves. And so uh, ended up in more software, web, had started another a few other companies in e-commerce, uh, and then ended up finding out that uh, when it comes down to just retail e-commerce that payments are this much more critical component than people gave it credit for. Um, data really isn't connected in stores, online, the various systems that they use, they're very disparate, especially when it's hardware. When you pay for something in a store, uh, the backend systems online aren't receiving that information. So it's really hard to really get even customer profiles, any sort of like funnel metrics, data, really tying together any sort of like unified experience. Uh, and But it does really sit with payments, um, and payments are also kind of walled off, though. You get these card associations, or it could even just be something like cash. So sometimes the data isn't even there. Um, so I built a mobile payments company uh, through TasteBud, and then ultimately that got acquired uh, by Ray's Marketplace, which was a gift card marketplace. But we had started doing a lot of work around uh, using gift cards as payment mechanisms, uh, very similar to like how the Starbucks app works. And we were trying to use prepaid prepaid as an incentive for people to spend and bringing that back into stores online. And that is a medium. Uh, so got way more experience than in mobile payments. Um, was then able to team up with another co-founder uh, from another company we had acquired who had also been in digital payments for a really long time. 
And then sort of together, we realized that there was an opportunity to change payments entirely. And uh, rather than relying on all this, this infrastructure, legacy infrastructure, if we build an entirely new network, we can actually strip out all of these fees. And even in like a payment card transaction, there's up to 12 entities, literally each a discrete point of failure in processing payments. And they all aren't doing it for free. And so that's why payments cost a lot. It's why payments are also extremely vulnerable to fraud uh, to the tune of tens of billions of dollars a year just in payment fraud at some of these major retailers. And it's also why our data gets stolen all the time. When you have 12 entities processing sensitive information, it's only a matter of time until it all gets stolen. You hear about all these data breaches, and this is why it's always going to get worse. There's really no way to make it better. Um, so after kind of a decade of frustration and seeing that, um, our founding team just said, hey, why don't... Um, we build a new network uh, from the ground up and let's have it have almost no fees and not all of these middlemen. And we just connect the merchants directly to a consumer. That would be a really great idea. Uh, and so we ended up doing that. Um, and it turns out that in order to secure those transactions the way that we would need, um, cryptocurrency provided literally the best answer for that. So we were not a, hey, we really like crypto. So we're going to make a pro we're going to make a. Uh, find a um, kind of problem for our solution and kind of force crypto payments on merchants or others. We actually started as we're going to solve this really intense, expensive legacy infrastructure problem through changing payments. And then crypto ended up just being the, the literal best way for that to happen. Um, and then sort of coincidentally to tie into that a little, uh, I joined, I guess I would say the Bitcoin community as a miner <laughs> Uh, back in early 2011, so I, I've been almost eight years or so um, in, you know, investing, buying, uh, being in much as I could within the cryptocurrency community, all different sorts of projects, um, because it was fascinating to me, and I saw how it had the potential to really change this status quo uh, and the decentralized payments as we sort of are seeing evolve today is something that just, to to me, has so much potential, and I actually envision it, it's inevitable. Um, so yeah, kind of tying those things together, um, Flexa is a, is a new payments network that allow any cryptocurrency to be spendable in stores instantly, uh, with no fees. And we're trying to open this up now to let as many people participate, um, at all the merchants that they know and love and make it global as soon as we can. So let's, let's dig into that. Um, and then I want to spend some time with Lassie and talk about your investment thesis and what you're, you're focusing on. Um, but let's walk through that. So I am average Joe in Sheboygan and I have $50 of Bitcoin that I somehow was gifted or maybe I used something like a lolly out there. Shout out to Alex. Um, and I have $50 of Bitcoin and I want to go buy a Milwaukee Bucks hat, um, because now they're getting deeper into the playoffs and, you know, I, I want to support, uh, I want to support them. And I go into uh, my retail merchant who does not accept Bitcoin and vis-a-vis -vis Flexa. Now I have some way of doing that. Explain how that works. <clears throat> uh, yes. So the complexity of a merchants natively accepting cryptocurrency, uh, man, there's a lot. Um, not only just technically, um, but in terms of even the transaction of having to wait for transactions to confirm uh, the volatility, you know, the, the very, the gamut that everyone is familiar with. And so what we do is 
we integrate directly uh, with the merchants themselves and we're able to basically pass through their POS system saying their transaction is valid. And we actually um, pay the merchant in through an ACH um, or a cash payment after the fact. So what we do is through our network, we backwards integrate with all their software and hardware. So they don't need any new upgrades of any kind. Uh, we just need permission from them that they want to accept cryptocurrency. And then we form a deal with them, uh, like kind of at their payment processor level. So that's where it would start is that we get some sort of a partnership, a deal with the merchant themselves that they want to accept cryptocurrency. We set this up for them. It's very, very straightforward. They just need to give us the authorizations. Um, and then uh, your friend that or you that has this uh, Bitcoin in an app, the idea would be you would tap somewhere within your app. It would create, uh, it would connect to our network. It would be able to create a payment code that is then scannable through any sort of typical scanner uh, at the point of sale. And then the transaction would be complete. Um, it's really that simple. It, it's one tap and then you'll scan a QR code um, on the phone itself. The payment is then sent through the POS. POS says everything is okay. We settle with the merchant afterwards in cash. They have no volatility. They don't see any of the cryptocurrencies. They have no exposure. They don't, none of the volatility. It's just dead simple for them. Uh, and the payment, the way that it works. Sorry, go ahead. Is it held in like escrow? I want to be able to understand. So I'm merchant, you know, I'm a hat, you know, I'm the hat merchant. I have all these hats. You know, this person comes in, buys a hat. And so am I, you know, is the, the Bitcoin effectively then an escrow, which you're then picking up and then giving me fiat for exactly? I'm just, I'm, I want to understand the, the, the dynamic there a little bit more. Oh, sure. So uh, the way it will work uh, with the full network is that uh, we we basically tell the merchant immediately um, that the payment will now be accepted and we pay them after the fact. And so our payment at the point of sale uh, takes less than a second all in. Uh, so it's very, very quick. In fact, we, we're really trying to make it literally the fastest payment method that's possible. Um, and so once that happens, then the wallet will send the Bitcoin, in this case, to us and to the network and our holdings. In which case, then we liquidate that internally on an exchange. So basically, we, we pass the signals to the merchant saying everything is now complete. We then pay them, let's say, later today or tomorrow or whatever their, their timing is um, through an ACH payment. But then immediately after that transaction is authorized, the user's wallet uh, will send the cryptocurrency to us. Got it. So at any given point in time, not to say this is your business, but so that $50 of Bitcoin that I just used or my friend used to buy a hat and then gets transferred to Flex's wallet. I imagine that you guys have a wallet that that basically picks that Bitcoin up. Is that correct? Correct. Is there anything prohibiting you from speculating on the market and saying we're going to hold it for a few hours? Um, I suppose, um, but it's more just not our business model. Um, the business model is that we don't want to charge or we want to try we want to put the most transparent um exchange rates possible and we don't in charge any fees on top of that uh so i suppose it could be possible um it's just never really the intent of the network the network is intending to connect that that buyer as directly as close to the merchant as possible uh to where we're trying to remove all of those fees or any volatility or any risk so it can just be completely seamless and just uh scalable for anyone basically to participate Got it. And so 
In terms of other crypto payment processing apps like BitPay or anything like these prepaid crypto debit cards that have been out there for a little while, um, how would you say you differ from some of those in terms of, you know, obviously we've talked about the dynamics, but in terms of like BitPay, which has been out there for a few years now, they've raised a pretty significant amount of money. You know, sure. if you could maybe talk about the differences there. Um, yeah, so at a high level, we're similar and we're enabling cryptocurrency payments, which is great. Uh, and we want to support any company doing that um, very actively. Uh, but we're actually fundamentally very different. Um, so the first one, as I mentioned, is uh, where a payments network. Uh, so we'd actually look to where BitPay or others actually might want to use our SDK in the future and use our payment system because they have apps with their own customers. So we'd love to even work with any of these entities and have them use our payment system even. Um, but some of the other differences would be um, all of our transactions, the cryptocurrency transactions between merchants are all off chain uh, and they always will be off chain. So in the example I just mentioned, um, people are paying the cryptocurrency to us after the fact, right? But we're settling with the merchants instantly and then um, sending them cash afterward. So that's really important because we built this again from the merchant side, um, starting off to make this usable. Um, <clears throat> merchants don't want these transactions on a blockchain uh, to where now people can look and see, oh, well, this large merchant has these customers or here's how much they're spending or here's the data associated with this. It's just such a non-starter. So even then for scale, all of our transactions uh, are completely off-chain. Like customers generally sending a payment to the network, right? So that's just a general um, privacy-protected transaction, and all of the other payments is done uh, off-chain. And also, that's really important. Um, we're the only ones that'll do it in store as well. So the other digital methods require all this additional hardware, software, any other sort of infrastructure to accept a cryptocurrency payment natively, um, something like a BitPay, for instance. So in store, there's always going to be a huge hurdle for any of those uh, sort of systems to gain traction. Uh, and then probably the final piece is that we don't use any um, physical cards of any kind, uh, and we never will. Um, the whole idea for us, again, is that we have a new network. We don't use Visa. We don't use MasterCard. We don't use virtual cards. We don't use gift cards. We don't use store cards. We don't use debit cards. <laughs> we do a totally separate network that we've now built. So we will never use any of those other instruments um, as payments. And so even philosophically, it's very, very different. We're trying to remove all of the friction and harness the real value of cryptocurrency, which is verified transactions, irreversible transactions that we can do for, you know, fractions of a cent. So that's really the power of what we're trying to bring forth, which is just pretty radically different, I think, in a lot of how other payment systems have approached the problem. And so in terms of the cryptocurrencies out there that you are going to be working with first and foremost, I imagine Bitcoin is the first and it's probably the one that you're going to be supporting. Are there any others that you are going to be supporting or you're currently supporting? So we we support Bitcoin. Uh, we would love to support as many assets or most of them uh, as soon as possible and as, and as prudent. And we'll really look to cryptocurrency communities uh, to find the ones that people actually want to spend. So that's really the important thing. Some crypto or most crypto uh, can even be designed for speculation or what it's used for in various ecosystems. 
Some of them aren't, aren't as designed as much for spending. So we want to emphasize that. So that's our first criteria. Um, and then there's also size and utility and all these other components. But so to start, we'll be, we'll be launching with Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin Cash and Ether uh, for a combination of those reasons to start. Uh, but we're looking to add a, a variety of other assets very quickly. Um, and, and hopefully the community will be able to support us and show us these are the sort of tokens we want to spend. And we'll look to incorporate those as fast as possible. And so what does liquidity on the opposite side? So when you actually, you know, when, you know, person A in Sheboygan buys that Milwaukee Bucks hat and they then, you know, send over the 50 Bitcoin or the $50 of Bitcoin to Flexa, you then obviously have to go and sell that. And so what part of liquidity, so Bitcoin obviously, you know, and Ether have predominantly some of the best liquidity out there. And then we get down into the lower tranches and, you know, BCH still has, you know, liquidity and some of these other ones have fair amount of liquidity. Does liquidity factor in into any of your decisions about what cryptocurrencies you'll take on going forward? Um, <clears throat> so ultimately, yes. Um, but it's not as great of a concern only because uh, we're, we're in retail payments, right? So smaller payments, these aren't multi-million dollar OTC deals, you know, moving markets, pretty much any sort of a trade we're going to make um, won't really affect uh, market conditions and due to all the liquidity that's out there and the different types of exchanges that are available. Uh, so ultimately, yes, um, if, if when we get to that state where we're having hundreds of assets and, and truly uh, nervous about some of the exchange conditions, that would be a fantastic problem for all of us to have. So I almost hope that we get there. Uh, but for the foreseeable future, any of the assets we'd be looking uh, to support, some of the larger market cap coins, we don't really envision any, any liquidity issues being any sort of a concern. And so we were talking, as I mentioned, uh, Alex Edelman from Lolly was on the show recently, and we were talking about their onboarding, and Alex had previous... Uh, experience with a, a company he started so he knew the retailers pretty well and as of today they have about 750 plus retailers that are uh, supportive of Lolly and so in terms of your efforts in getting merchants onboarding what's the strategy right now how are you guys doing that and where mm -hmm. right now with that um well yeah so the first thing thankfully we have uh one of the best value propositions in that we literally are going to a merchant saying um, we're going to charge you the lowest possible, uh, basically of any other payment method that you have. Uh, we'll undercut anything that's out there. Uh, they're all digital customers, it's all mobile, and you only are getting ACH payments, no volatility, uh, and you actually don't need any upgrades or software and no hardware, nothing of any kind, uh, nor really any employee training. So it actually just is one of these things that sounds a little too good to be true. Um, so, so thankfully, we have an amazing value proposition. And then it starts stemming from just as you sort of mentioned there, these previous relationships. And that's how we even got started this to begin with, is that we knew it was such a problem to them. Otherwise, we really wouldn't have known. I mean, you can research this data and see the, you know, tens of billions of dollars of payment expenses and transaction expenses. But it's not something that's really top of mind and people don't read about it. It's not really that exciting. <laughs> so it really did take you know, 10 years specifically working through these systems to say, wow, these merchants actually really care about this. They're beholden to these other networks. And you're starting to see a little bit of that frustration um, uh, kind of get a little more public where you see uh, examples like Kroger a few weeks ago saying, 
Um, we're not accepting visa anymore because because the fees are too high and we're just we literally just can't do this anymore. And you're starting to see some of the larger merchants make a little bit more of a public stance. So you see it a little. Uh, but yeah, over the past 10 years, we got this this more intimate familiarity of how big of a problem this was. So uh, through our past experience, the connection we had, mutual interest of wanting to really change the game and lower these transaction expenses. That's where we've started. Um, so I'd say very similar to what you just mentioned, the, the previous experience, uh, working closely with merchants, that's where it's all started uh, and getting traction now from when, when this will go live um, next week, actually. Um, so we're planning on making some announcements. So we've talked about how May 13th uh, is when we will be talking about the network and, and having some functionality. Uh, these are going to be the, some of the largest U.S. merchants that you know of. Um, we've started very big. This is where the transaction expense is a big problem for them. So we'll have a variety of very large merchants on the platform. And then from there, uh, we show how it works and we'll start to add as similar to what I mentioned before on some of the tokens we'll support. We're doing the same then on the merchant side. So we have a lot of new merchants we'll be adding. Um, we'll look to the communities and tell us where they want to spend, what types of products they want to buy uh, and where. Uh, and then it's just working with those merchants to to get them signed up and recognize the value, and we go from there. Now, do you? This is something that we didn't necessarily discuss, but I'm curious because Backed has been working through the processes. And as far as I understand, the idea is that you can go to. And this has been the proverbial story that you can go to a Starbucks and buy your latte with Bitcoin, and then they will effectively do the clearinghouse of that and repatriate Starbucks with fiat, I imagine. Do you consider yourself in competition, or do you feel that BACT would be a future competitor to Flexa? Um, at this point, I think uh, you know there's a spectrum of how products evolve, um, so I almost feel like it could be any number of those. Um, I optimistically look at it, again, as we mentioned earlier, uh, us being this payment network, I'd, I'd love the opportunity to have them work with us uh, and use our system. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a free system. They'll be able to make various cryptocurrency payments um, through our system to other merchants. So. Ultimately, and at this point, I would say it's very complimentary, um, and I would presume it to be. Um, but we'd love to work with these other companies. Uh, and how do we just get payment costs down to zero? And if people are spending cryptocurrency through these other methods, then fantastic. And so one of the last questions, and so I'm thinking about you know, six months down the road, when everyone does their Black Friday purchases, you have the holidays come, everyone buys all their presents and then all of a sudden you know aunt joni doesn't really like the sweater with the deers on it and she goes back to walmart or wherever else it was bought and she wants to re she wants a refund or she wants to you know she's not happy with it she wants her money back or you know she tells you that she you know to go get your money back what do you how do you handle or how what's the future how would you handle a refund in that particular setting uh, sure. Although I will, uh, I would quickly comment that I have enjoyed your colorful analogies or examples <laughs> of, uh, now I'm sitting here and my response is thinking, do I got the Milwaukee Bucks and he's buying the store and now he's got the deer sweater on the grandma. It's just kind of funny. Um, and they're, they're great. Thank you. Um, uh, I went to uh, content and so I'm reliving my Midwest day 
the this one the easy answer there is uh you will uh have a receipt uh from that merchant just like anything else and the way that you would it'll be merchant specific of how they want to uh handle refunds but you're absolutely going to be entitled to a refund like anything else you will have a receipt um they would either refund you in cash or potentially even like a store credit card um those are the options that are available to them right away. Uh, we would not be able to, at least for the foreseeable future, do refunds in cryptocurrency, mainly uh, because it just starts opening up other uh, um, arbitrage or other sort of activities that we're just not really about, right? Like if people are trying to game some sort of a system and now using retail as some exchange mechanism or something like that, it just adds a lot of complexity. Um, so we really just want to be about this is for spending. Um, that's the utility that this provides. Uh, and then exchanges or, re or refunds on the other end will be straightforward uh, in, a, in an equitable fashion. Thank you. I appreciate the, the shout out for the analogies. Uh, I'll try to keep that going through the rest of the show. <laughs> and so switching to lastly, um, in terms of uh, 1KX, would love to hear your investment thesis um you obviously seem to be focusing on the earlier stage uh on the seed side and so we'd love to hear your investment thesis on the space right now and as you've been monitoring and investing in the asset class and the technology stack for the last few years how is it been evolving and kind of adapting um in your eyes yeah um Thank you for having me. Um, big fan of the podcast. And um, yeah, so our investment thesis is um, we're, we're an early stage uh, token network investor. Uh, our thesis is uh, that for very large networks and open source, and I would say, quote unquote, nonprofit tokenized structure is fundamentally better than a for-profit entity or put another way, um, It'll be very, very hard for a for-profit company to compete with, uh, you know, an open source token network that has, uh, and we're assuming here that it has a good token design, a good token utility. Put another way, imagine Bitcoin or Ethereum had been private companies, they would have gone nowhere. And so I think that's the short form of, um, of our investment thesis, um, that we are seeing uh, crypto economics as a massive new platform enabled by blockchains that allows to program uh, beneficial behavior of network into the protocol and therefore incentivize large groups of people, large networks, uh, to act in ways that sort of enhance uh, uh, and are like rocket fuel for the, uh, for the network effects. And so talking about human behavior and talking about how crypto economic systems are changing those, so is there any conflict between token cryptonomics, equity, and founder incentives? How do you think about that as a VC token investor? Uh, yes, this is a really good question. And I think the most important uh, conflict of interest we do see between equity and tokens. Um, <clears throat> broadly speaking is if you're an equity for-profit entity, your main you know I mean profit literally is the metric of how much value can I? suck out of a network and we actually think it's it's not a great uh, metric at all it's just the the status quo it's the default we all grow up with it so we take it for granted as this is what you know companies are the default this is what happens then they need to make profit 
but it's actually a really poor metric because, uh, like I said, it just means you're, you know, how much value are you sucking out of the network? And if uh, assuming that a, a tokenized network has a good token utility and the, and the incentives are well uh, designed, um, what can happen is that the the metric or really just becomes utility uh, for a token network, meaning that I want to create the most useful thing possible without having to think about monetization schemes. Um, I just want to make this as useful as possible because that will drive the demand for the token. Um, so that would be the most uh, sort of uh, a glaring um, conflict of interest I can see. This is why we've done equity investments. We can do that in an early stage where it's too early to be sort of nailed down on a specific uh, function of the tokens. Um, but it's always because we do see that this is a network that will benefit from being open source and having um, uh, crypto economics um, with the token as a enable of that. And so thinking about adoption and thinking about people actually using these systems, I've talked about this a lot on the show. And I've been thinking about this more and more in terms of on-ramps to get the average Joe and Jane, you know, who are not technically savvy, having them be able to use these systems and effectively not even really know that they're using a quote-unquote blockchain technology. And so many of the current crypto networks, especially service offerings, you know, case in point, storage and Filecoin and others out there, the, the centralized cloud storage ones that compete or they try to compete with the more centralized ones that we now know, like Dropbox. Um, they're not really that easy for you know the everyday person to use, um, and so, and they're also not necessarily cheaper than Amazon Web Services in many cases. So when you're investing in tokens like those that are supporting those systems, how do you factor in adoption rates with your time horizon when deciding what to invest in? Yeah, this is a very good question. I think we also for for you know the big learning for for us of 2017 was we did have a bit of a vision that you know um, everyday normal people will sort of be part of these token networks and that will contribute, that will be incentivized, and that will be sort of very helpful uh, members of this token community. I think um, you know we it, it sort of 2017 it got run over a little bit by retail speculators. And it turns out that those are uh, a not really able to handle private keys, etc. Um, b not really interested in contributing too much, but other than yelling at the Telegram when the Binance listing comes. <laughs> so that was, to be honest, was uh, sort of something we've learned. Uh, however, we still see there's sort of these early adopter innovator types, right? So around one percent of the population that, if they have a great insurance, they go out of the way to share it with their friends. And so whatever, so they're just sort of people that are intrinsically motivated to. Um, to share good things and to contribute. And I think um, crypto networks uh, can really leverage these type of uh, contributors. And so with something like Flexa is a very good example where, I don't think if this was mentioned yet, but um, part of the Flexa network and the utility of the Flexa token is as collateral for wallets, right? This is for an SDK that any wallet, uh, crypto wallet can integrate and sort of make crypto spendable uh, anywhere. Uh, but there are sort of, there's this concept of confirmation times, right? There's a risk period where um, you basically need collateral and that token is, uh, the Flexa token is staked towards the wallet as a collateral. Now, if you, if the wallet doesn't have enough money to stake because it's an open source wallet, et cetera, um, anybody can stake towards a wallet. And then um, this is looking like for now, like a 1% sort of the traditional payment fee um, will actually be used to buy the Flexa token and distribute it to uh, the network stakers. 
Um, and so this is a great example where the sort of everyday end consumer doesn't really care about crypto or might struggle with the usability, at least at this point. They don't even know they're using, you know, um, too much or don't get too involved with crypto. They have a wallet that's very easy to use. Uh, we've seen that, you know, there are tens of millions of wallets out there. I think the usability of that is is, is sort of good enough. Uh, they go to a store, uh, it generates with two taps or one tap a QR code, it gets scanned. Um, and that's it. That's their interaction with crypto. And I think that'll be easy enough. Uh, on the other side, you will have all these early adopters that, um, you know, are staking and and handling uh, the Flexa token and staking towards wallet, finding which ones have sort of still, uh, you know, uh, which ones drive a lot of volumes, which ones are good wallets, which ones still have collateral sort of opportunities um, to stake towards. And um yeah, I think that would be uh, Flex is a good example where you combine sort of uh, roughly speaking the the the, the more uh, general user base that you know you can't really um, expect too much work from them, uh, but also the early adopter um, community which we've seen you know flourish in crypto where you can actually contribute a lot to these networks. You can actually get active, and there are really tangible rewards for you. Um, you know, maybe, I don't know, you're in South Africa and you have internet, but otherwise no economic, economic opportunities, but you have internet and you can actually find out and learn about crypto and you can contribute and, uh, uh, with, and, and get involved, uh, with Flexa and actually be, uh, you know, uh, rewarded for that. And so you kind of, we started getting into how you discern and how you value these systems. So getting into the evaluation question. You know, one of my favorite areas to kind of delve into and one of the areas that we talk about a lot um, as, you know, as a firm uh, at ARCA, um, as an investor who's been watching the space now for a few years and seeing the maturation of, you know, valuation metrics. And so MV equals PQ was one of the first out there. Chris Berninsk and those guys kind of uh, got a lot of attention on that one. Metcalf's law has also been talked about. What are some of your kind of favorite valuation metrics that you've been using uh, as you focus, as I mentioned, more early stage versus uh, some of the other VCs and some of the other investors out there? Um, yeah, so these are, um, I really like uh, the work that, uh, that uh, you know, placeholders doing, uh, very, very thoughtful people. Um, and I think it is very um uh, yeah, very important that we sort of get to more um, generally adopted kind of frameworks. Um, we are very, very early stage, um, and we focus on sort of on very obvious, very, very big markets. Um, sort of, let's say, uh, you know, computation, right? You've mentioned this before, sort of AWS, et cetera. Obviously, these are very, very large markets. And, um, and uh, can we, uh, do we have, for us, it's more, do we have the team that a uh, you know is mainly technical has deep sort of protocol distributed systems cryptography experience um do we is it a network generally that uh, needs to uh, incentivize a large group of people ideally all across the world uh, to contribute as miners validators stakers etc and then um do we uh can we foresee that there is um there are ways to design the token uh, to be integrated into the network that it really becomes a metric for the utility of uh, of, of of this network. Um, so those are the things that we focus more on. Um, the sort of modeling with numbers is is an is an important part of that, um, or it, it is it's a process of that, but it's more 
um, additional. Because also what we one thought we have is, you know, a lot of people missed out on Uber uh, because they did all these TAM analysis on the taxi market and uh, really missed out that Uber created an entirely new market and expanded radically above that. And so we um, find these uh, formulas useful, but we take them with a grain of salt. Uh, and um, at the early stage, sort of we're like an, you know, a, a token angel VC. So at the earlier stages, what is... Um, much more important for the ROI of our investment is actually uh, the team. Um, do they uh, are they going after you know and very obviously an easy to model huge market, let's say like AWS computation, uh, and do they have sort of the experience and the technical chops to uh, to actually have a realistic chance of of uh, offering something in that space? So talking about teams and talking about founders, obviously. We have Tyler on with us as well, too, and I, I think it's worth noting that 1KX is an investor in Flexa. Um, so when you're talking about early, and I've seen early stage investments, uh, many of the family offices and high net worth people who listen to the show have obviously looked at early stage investments, and it becomes less about the total addressable market, and almost it's a bet on the founder and the team. And you have to have trust and you have to have some sort of an insight that this founder can really execute. And so what are some of the key attributes that you've learned over the last few years in a founder that really signals to you that this is something that you want to invest in? Um, yes, and maybe quick note, as uh, my background as I was a software entrepreneur for uh, nine years, and uh, and uh, the other partner, uh, Chris, uh, was also my co-founder and CTO. Um, and so I think as a former founder, it's a little easier to get a good sort of almost instinctive understanding or feel for this is a real founder. And now it's hard to generalize because they come in many different shapes and forms. Um, what we do is we just try to spend a lot of time with them or have a lot of conversations. Um, and uh, very, very important is that even with the first conversation, this becomes we're on an equal level. It's not like, hey, I'm the investor, impress me, but it's really like, hey, this is, you know, this is this is your challenge. This is awesome. Let's try to make this work uh, and, and, and let's do this together. If we get a feel that, yeah, this is really sort of a, a, a trusted dialogue where, you know, they are actually coming to us and saying, hey, this is what keeps me up at night. This is my biggest problem right now. Um, how can we fix this? Um, so that's those things are really um, kind of what what convinces us that um, or we get a feel for for the founders. Yes, they can do this. Obviously, there's some you know there's a two minute check for us. It's pretty easy. We immediately go to the team side page, and uh, you know if there's uh, three MBAs, they're all about 45, and they you know they call themselves a president or whatever. Um, it's probably not a good fit. This is crypto is a young person's game to be honest. It's a very, very technical space. It's very early. It's mainly about protocols. So it should be a predominantly technical team or have a lot of sort of experience, understanding of the market that they're going into. As someone who just turned 40 a few weeks ago, I take issue with that statement. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so kind of getting and I'm, uh, maybe I, I can i can chime in here i would also consider myself i'm not doing a project i'm not a founder of these projects uh, i prefer to invest in them now because i really think uh, 
the young energy. Uh, it's just something, it's such a new paradigm. Um, and like I said, right, something as, as fundamental as everyone assumed, the for-profit entity, that's the best thing. We need to go after profit. That's sort of a very established mental model. And I think the more time we spent or the longer we've lived, we're basically the more ingrained <laughs> this model is in us. And so that's why, you know, we think there's also the potential for a huge socioeconomic shift later on in maybe 10 years. Um, where actually what I mentioned before, the, the end consumer involvement in these networks might actually be higher. But I think that requires a socioeconomic shift, which, you know, well, that can take a long time, um, one or two generations. So that's what sort of maybe some more color and why we think this crypto is a, is a young person's game, at least on the execution side, on the founder side. Well, Zaki Manian, who was on the show from Cosmos and Secure Chain, said a few days ago that one year in crypto is 10 years of human life. So I guess... <laughs> yes, it's very true. You, know, well, you, need, you need those years left because you're going to use them up very quickly. Exactly. Um, and so kind of the last question for you, Lassie, is in, in terms of, you know, being so early and focusing on, you know, protocols that have some level of adoption, is there anything that you've looked at over the last few years, any particular project protocol that had an amazing use case? And when you were thinking about, you know, potential adoption, you you saw it, the founders, you know, everything was checklisted, everything seemed good. But potentially in many of the cases, and I think this obviously follows for many of the cases right now, it was too early for user adoption. It was just too early for mass adoption. And again, going back to the comments we had with Tyler, you know, with the UI and UX, it's got to be a click. It's got to be something that you just do on your phone. It's frictionless. You don't even really know that you're using a quote-unquote blockchain technology. Um, you know, is there anything that you've kind of, you know, looked at or got really excited about as a project and it just, it was way too early? Um, to be honest, I don't remember this particularly where you said everything's great, but you're too early. Um, pass. Um, I don't remember this happening. I, an example would be uh, maybe something very similar to Flexor or something that really requires a lot of end consumer adoption, but is, you know, targets Europe only. Um, so we have sort of some some uh, adjustment of geographies, right? So we invested in a payment project in Korea called Terra as well. And that does rely a lot on end consumer adoption, but you can do that because technology adoption in, in Asia in general, and especially in Korea, is very fast. People love downloading new apps, trying out new things. In Europe, uh, the end consumer, you know, they're kind of on WhatsApp and Instagram now and every new app, they don't want to download anything else. Um, so so we have some sort of uh, distinction between the geographies. We, you know, last uh, year, I flew nine times around the world. We spent a lot of time on the ground. So we do have a feel for these different markets and how they're different. Um, and so, yeah, an example would be something that's like very dependent on end consumer adoption uh, in Europe. Um, that would probably be a no. It's too early. One other thing that I'd like to talk about, and I, I, I write something on a weekly basis now called Signal to Noise, and one of the things that I really talk about a lot is the focus on price as, in my opinion, being majoritively noise. Yes, Bitcoin has rallied, and yes, it touched over 6,000, and yes, you're starting to see people with their memes coming back out and saying, okay, here we go. <laughs> now, what, how much time or... Are you concerned as an investor, you know, about price right now? Is it something that gets you concerned? Is it something that you just kind of put in your rear view mirror? 
what part of price in terms of some of the liquid protocols, liquid tokens that you invest in, what part of price gets you concerned or does it get you concerned? It's it's a very uh, two-edged sword. So I think it's the focus on price because it's it's such an easy metric to understand. It's just one number, right? And and it's so easy for for a more a media that addresses a larger audience to just talk about price all the time. Um, I think at a certain level it gets extremely distractive. We've seen so the last six to eight months were really amazing for us. Uh, we stayed extremely active. We had our thesis. We continue to invest in that and some of the best investments we did in that period. Um, because you have a lot of um, people who are attracted in the space for easy ICO money, et cetera, and then obviously aren't investable at all um, and are, are actually creating a lot of noise, um, sort of disappear and are out of the market. Um, on the other side, you would be surprised how many supposedly even very, very smart investors, very successful people outside of crypto um, are also just, you know, dependent on the price. And so... Uh, Bitcoin went down, went to three thousand something. Uh, those people are also now very, all of a sudden very, very skeptical about the long-term sustainability of cryptocurrencies and the technology. While when Bitcoin was at eighteen thousand, they were knocking at our door and like trying to get in. And so, unfortunately, price does matter. Um, what I think would be more beneficial is that uh, we have sort of a more gradual kind of slower price appreciation and not sort of like this massive sort of uh, run up uh, like in 2017 that just creates all this madness. Do you notice any cyclicality to the price? You know, for instance, like next week is consensus and Ethereum has moved up and down relative to that time period. Um, you know, it's almost in, tra in traditional finance, there's a big conference called the Stone Conference where Bill Ackman and a bunch of the other hedge fund guys go and you know, talk about their one idea and then obviously that potentially could rise in the public markets and or potentially dump. Do you notice any cyclicality and do you notice any kind of, as we're getting to consensus next, next week and blockchain week here in New York, do you notice any relation to those types of events and price? Um, yeah. there. <laughs> So, I mean, generally we're, we're long-term investor, right? So we try to not, uh, we, I can find the, or I find that these price sort of observations are really uh, just emotionally draining. It's very exhausting. It's up and down and up and down and you get excited, you get sad, you get excited, you get sad. <laughs> and so we try to stay out of this. I yeah. think there was for the first three DEF CONs or something, there was always a price appreciation before the DEF CON in, in Ether. Uh, I think a team told us this. And then they, you know, they basically tried to kind of trade this and it totally didn't work at all, I think, in, uh, in Prague or Cancun. And so, I mean, and I, I, I love Coindesk and I love consensus. Um, it'd be great if every time there's a consensus before that we have a run up. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people would want to trade that. Um, I personally wouldn't want to do that. So getting to the top of the hour, the other thing is you guys are listeners, you probably are expecting this. There are a few inputs that you know, I always like to say that we put in our brain on a daily basis, whether we're traveling, and as everyone in crypto knows, there's always a lot of traveling. If you're traveling, you're on an airplane, you're listening to some music, uh, potentially either, you know, in, in Tyler's case or in other people's cases, you're potentially, you know, working on your code, um, or you're reading uh, subsequent materials as an investor. You know, is there anything that you guys love to listen to? Um, and then the other input that I always like to ask my guests is, what are you reading? Um, you know, I have my stack of books right in front of me right now, looking at Master Switch and Full by Randomness and Philip K. Dick's Ubik and Thinking Fast and Slow and Predictability and 
a few other different things that I need to get to because I've been slacking on that over the last few weeks. But is there anything that you guys love to listen to while working or just uh, being in your own mind? And then also in terms of anything that you've read over the last few months that has really resounded to you, either crypto-related or not crypto-related? <laughs> Do you want to oh, go man. first? Yeah, sure. Uh, there was a few in there. Uh, from the music perspective, um, I've always just been an EDM fan uh, for years, even as I am getting older here, as last I kind of mentioned. Time to get you to Berlin, man. Yeah. Oh, no, that's that's fantastic out there. So um, so that's just for me. It's mainly because uh, it's a little just more energizing. Uh, I really like to stay focused, uh, particularly when I'm working. Always use the noise-canceling headphones, especially on planes and things like that. So that, for me, is absolutely where I generally will stick. Um, from a reading perspective, uh, I honestly cannot tell you the last time I've read a fiction book. Um, it's just really not ever my thing. Um, I love anything that talks around, like, understanding something. Uh, one of my one of my favorites that I'm reading now actually is called uh, it's uh, like the history of the corporation. Uh, it's actually a, a really fascinating book. Like people don't realize that the concept of a company uh, having the rights of people and, and people actually investing into this thing uh, is a really modern creation. Uh, when you think about it, it's I like putting in the context. People talk about um, you know cryptocurrencies and central banking. When you realize that a central bank is less than 100 years old, right? So when we try to think about things of, oh, what does the next 100 years look like? To say that maybe, I'm not trying to uh, uh, you know, be too, too um, extremist, but would central banks exist, right? Like right now we think about it as like, oh, absolutely, because that's a staple of our society. They've been around forever. Like, no, they haven't. They've only been around less than 100 years. And when you look at even a company, uh, that's even that's about the same. They're they're invented in like the late 1800s, and there were other proxies previously. But it's a really fascinating book. I'd recommend people check it out. It goes through the whole history of like how groups and guilds and ownership and stock and and you also see the the boom and bust cycle. We always look at you know the tulip mania, you know, and others. There's actually so many more than just haven't gotten the publicity. So. Or, or the readership so to understand the concept of hype and people buying into something with the purest expectation of, of profit and mania and nothing else is such a human flaw <laughs> or or a feature however we want to view it um that has been going on forever uh and how that actually gets translated into a company so i love that uh on the human side too i read i read a lot about um uh, I love uh, Jared Diamond books, uh, Guns, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Uh, he wrote a new one recently on the other fall of societies. Just like human dynamics uh, and kind of uh, the, the math uh, around with like kind of this new evolutionary psychology is just fascinating to me. So oh, a lot of kind of history we learn from that. So that's kind of my piece there. Uh, and then a lot of boring payment stuff. Uh, I love payment stuff. And I also love um, just sticking in, in what we know, mo mobile technologies, anything related to, to crypto. Um, I, I find uh, a lot of the other newsletters that are out there, uh, proof of work is very interesting. Um, others that just talk about um, general updates uh, within cryptocurrency communities, other white papers, technical white papers, uh, that sort of thing. Um, I just read my first, I think, fiction book in probably 10, 15 years, <laughs> uh, Three-Body Problem. Uh, I can highly recommend it. 
Um, in terms of, uh, there's two podcasts I listen to you, and they're very complimentary to yours, so I think it's okay to plug them. The first one is a Zero Knowledge podcast, is uh, out of Berlin. It's quite technical, but also very digestible. Um, so if someone has interest in understanding sort of the current protocols and projects on a bit more technical level, um, this is a really good one. And another one that we uh, help sort of initiate is called The Wizard of the Daps. There's so much information and resources and conferences, especially for protocol developers. Everything is about protocol developers, et cetera. And then, but then we're all trying to build this for DAP developers, right? And uh, we had the Fluence DAP developer report in 2018. 75% of the DAP developers came in 2018. They were new to blockchain. They have basically no onboarding whatsoever. And we looked at the... Um, uh, podcasts and there's nothing for DAP developers. Um, so the Wizard of the DAPs is basically that where we have uh, DAP developers come and just speak about their experience of, of building things. And the founder of InstaDAP, for example, said uh, a huge problem, and it's so obvious, is that testing, right? So Maker, if you integrate a few different protocols, they're all on different test networks. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was Maker and Kyber, they're on different test networks, so they had to go to mainnet to actually start doing their testing. That's insane, <laughs> right? And so something that obvious uh, uh, should have been addressed way earlier. And, uh, and so this is kind of the hope with this Wizard of the DAP podcast that uh, we get more awareness for the actual needs and experiences of DAP developers. Um, then I'm intensely uh, uh, focused on curating who I follow on Twitter. And, um, and I like an app called Nuzzle uh, that sort of aggregates the most shared links over 24 hours. So it's basically like a, a summary digest. So I don't have to be on Twitter all the time, um, but just sort of once or twice a day, I can check in and see the most important things uh, from an intensely curated list of people I follow. I've never heard of that one. That's one I'm going to have to check out for sure. Um, and by the way, plugging other podcasts is completely fine on this show. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Um, and also, Tyler, it sounds like you and I definitely need to be in a book club together because we're reading a lot of the same things. Um, <laughs> and also, our affinity for EDM, as many people have listened to on the show before, I that is a it's been something that's been in my life for over 20 years. Um, and something that is deeply important to me. Um, and so the last thing that we usually like to do on the show is give our guests the ability, if, if people want to try to find you, either vis-a-vis -vis your websites or social media presences, feel free to give a link or a plug-in right now, and uh, we'll go from there. Uh, on my end, um, I am maybe surprisingly not that active uh, on social media. Uh, Could be a really good thing for a founder. Yeah, I just like to build stuff. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm not really as active there. People can find me every now and then. I'll share something. It's I, I would mainly just say even just our our website, flexa.network. Uh, right now, it's just the landing page until we launch. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of good stuff there. Uh, not only for developers to get involved uh, and start to be able to add their apps, download our SDK, and be able to literally spend any coin that you want from your own apps. We will enable that, and that is coming very soon. Uh, but even more importantly, being able to see all the new merchants uh, that are uh, onboarding to the platform, as well as just every couple of weeks, we're going to have uh, quite a few more coming up here. So getting to see now the the mainstream growth of crypto and merchants that are accepting it is pretty exciting and we're putting a lot of information there. So I think that's the easy reference point. And for me, yeah, reach out to me on, on Twitter. It's, uh, I think if you search for Lassa Klaus and 1KX, you should be able to find me. Amazing. So this was Tyler Falding, the co-founder of Flexa, and this is Lassa Klaus and the founding partner of 1KX. 
again, a special show, a two for one, uh, two great, uh, one great investor, one great founder teams that you should definitely take a look at. Uh, everyone can find us on baselayer.tech and also um, vis-a-vis our new ARCA landing page, which we'll be uh, launching quite soon, so everyone can find all of our podcasts there too. Thank you guys for joining us, and we'll be talking to you soon. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for having us. For more notes on this episode and others, please go to www.ar.ca slash baselayer. Next week is Blockchain Week here in New York, the week of May 13th. Myself and the team at ARCA will be here in New York, and if you're an investor or founder, we would love to meet you. Feel free to email me at david at ar.ca. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and also throw us a rating or review if you could. We try to every day to make this podcast better for you, the listener. So if there's anything we can do to make it better, please let us know.